welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and it is our weekly roundtable. And our panelists will discuss today on the international front, the movement for reparations. There's a boost for calls for reparations after the death of Queen Elizabeth. And there's a coming together of the African diaspora to make these demands. Also, on the international front, the war on the Ukraine, the summit between the presidents of China and Russia, how is the world alignment looking? And on the national front, Donald Trump threatens the United States with a violence and the U.S. intelligence secrets. Are they going to the highest bidder? Trump's legal troubles and the friendly judge who stopped the criminal investigation. Anything we can glean, read the midterm elections. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead, Ukrainian officials say they found a mass grave carrying more than 400 dead bodies in Ukraine in a region recently recaptured from Russian forces. A Ukrainian prosecutor says some of the bodies unearthed show signs of torture. He said today some of their hands had been tied behind their backs and ropes were around their necks. Police said the mass burial grave site in a forest contained 445 graves. It was discovered close to Izium after a rapid counteroffensive by Ukraine forces retook the northeastern city and much of the Kharkiv region. Ukraine's deputy interior minister, meanwhile, said they also found evidence Russian forces set up multiple torture chambers where both Russians and foreigners were detained. Yesterday marked a national day of action across the U.S. to promote peace, not war, in Ukraine. In the U.S., President Joe Biden says white supremacists will not have the last word. He gave the keynote address at the first-of-its-kind White House Summit on Hate-Fueled Violence. Christopher Martinez reports. The White House event brought together community leaders, government officials, activists, and survivors and family members affected by hate violence. Susan Bro is the mother of a young woman killed in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The driver admitted in court that it was a crime of hate, an attempted mass murder that only killed one person. Later, President Joe Biden gave the keynote speech. He told how he decided to run for president after the Charlottesville killing. And he also recalled then-President Donald Trump's comment about fine people on both sides. That's not Biden's approach. In America, evil will not win. It will not prevail. And white supremacists will not have the last word. And this venom and violence cannot be the story of our time. He also announced new actions, including federal resources for schools to prevent bullying and hate violence, a citizen's initiative to foster community dialogue, and a billion dollars in philanthropic investments in programs to build bridges between different communities. 
Reporting for Pacifica Radio News, I'm Christopher Martinez. The White House has denounced the actions of Republican governors Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott of Texas, who've sent plane loads and bus loads of immigrants to what they view as liberal havens like New York City, Martha's Vineyard, and even the Washington, D.C. home of Vice President Kamala Harris. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Republican governors interfering in that process and using migrants as political pawns is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. The immigrants were transferred to places where they could receive services. DeSantis says he was sending them to sanctuary destinations. Florida's lawmakers earmarked $12 million to do that. California Governor Gavin Newsom is weighing in. He sent a letter to the Department of Justice urging an investigation into the Republican governor's practice, including an investigation into charges of kidnapping and civil rights violations. Democrats have largely called the move a callous political stunt. At the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, white supremacist lawmakers had sent blacks in busloads to northern cities like Martha's Vineyard, where many of them ultimately resettled. Former President Donald Trump warned of possible violence if he's indicted by the Justice Department for his retention and handling of classified documents at his Florida Mar-a-Lago residence. He made his statements in an appearance on the Hewitt radio show. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. Days after the Mar-a-Lago search, a man reportedly armed with an AR-15 assault weapon tried to breach the FBI Cincinnati office. He was later killed in a shootout. Oil executives ducked a House hearing on oil prices and profits Thursday. The House Oversight Committee released a 22-page memo detailing the fossil fuel company's attempts to greenwash their plans for a long-term fossil fuel future. Rokana is a California Democrat. The dark money behind the scenes. I mean, they are lobbying. These documents show they're lobbying the industries to say, don't commit to the Paris Accords, don't commit to anything, don't put it in our business plans, while they're parading up for the American public that they're committed to clean policy. The memo and internal company documents the committee released show carbon capture is a choice of greenwashing. It's a practice that some environmental and indigenous groups have long criticized that takes carbon emissions and stores them in the ground. One BP internal document finds carbon capture and storage could enable the full use of fossil fuels across the energy transition and beyond. It says an internal shell email urges not talking about carbon capture as prolonging the life of oil, gas, or fossil fuels writ large. A ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan is holding following two days of fighting that have killed more than 176 soldiers on both sides. I'm Christina Onestet, reporting for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Tooth. I'd now like to welcome our panelists for today's roundtable. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's good to be back. 
Yes, indeed. And I'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, Governing Board Member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. It's I'm good not to here. be back as well. I I couldn't find the unmute button. It's welcome. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. That's, that's quite all right. Good to hear you, Jackie. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. Well, I think he's lost count, actually, of <laughs> over about 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of the U.S., and his forthcoming book, Fascism and Revolting Capital, Capital Racism and Radicalism, in Washington, D.C., 1918 to 1968. So we look forward to that. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting you've been, me. You've been busy as usual. <laughs> We just can't keep up with all of your writing. I always say Dr. Horn writes faster than most of us can read. Anyhow, today we are going to start off. I mean, there's been so much news internationally, including in the U.S., a practical obsession with the death of Queen Elizabeth of the U.K. and the, the funeral services and their long lines, apparently now a 14 hour wait of people to go see the Queen, you know, lines stretching 10 miles long, you know, etc. But since the death of Queen Elizabeth of the UK and the succession of her eldest son, now King Charles III, the movement and calls for reparations from former and present day British colonies is growing. They include lawsuits, demands for money, returning stolen artifacts, and apologies. This past August, a gathering of activists, artists, and scholars from across Africa, the Caribbean, North America, Europe, Central, and South America met in Accra, the capital of Ghana, and issued the Accra Declaration on Reparations and Racial Healing. The declaration outlined, and I quote, the crimes of the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, apartheid, and neocolonialism, the systems, structures, and institutions established to perpetuate these harms. They're critical of those systems. The declaration further says of all this has left an injurious legacy that impacts every aspect of life of people of African descent around the world. And in the United States, several states have already begun to grapple with uh, reparations, and there's a bill in the U.S. Congress to establish a study. But much of the discussion right now is on reparations from the U.K. and Europe. And keep in mind, the wealth of the U.K. gained as a result of the slave trade is far more than the billions owned by the royal family today. As far back as 1631, the UK formed the Company of Merchant Adventures of London, involved out of the gate in the slave trade. They later changed the name to the Company of Royal Adventures Trading in Africa, and they established it. They had hoped to monopolize the trade for a thousand years. They had big plans for us, didn't they? Barbados is a prime example in the Americas of British brutality and theft. 
The entire economy in Barbados was built on slavery. And it was also on that island where the infamous slave codes were developed and then shared and implemented in the United States. In Barbados, the average life of an enslaved person was 18 years. Tens of thousands died from overwork and brutality. And on the continent of Africa, it was mass slaughter and theft that established modern day Nigeria, for example. The British forced militarily independent nations to come together to form a new country under the auspices of the British. And in Kenya, land theft was rampant. And those who rebelled, for example, the Mau Mau were tortured and slaughtered. And those are just a few of quick examples. Now, for its part, CARICOM, the Caribbean islands, they are calling for reparations not only from the UK, but from 10 European nations. Most recently, the Netherlands has indicated that they will set up a reparations account, the first in Europe to do so. Now, the wealth of the monarchy in the UK today is a multi-billion dollar business. Indeed, the royal family is known as the firm. According to Fortune magazine, it has an estimated worth of $28 billion. Let's go to a clip now that breaks that wealth down, and then our panelists will weigh in on all this. Attention is turning, as you suggest, not just to her legacy, but also to what she leaves behind financially in a country that's very much in the midst of economic pain. With the crown, Charles inherits great responsibility, but also great wealth. King Charles III is in line for a double inheritance, as a son and as a monarch. There's a lot of debate about whether or not the monarchy is value for money. Monarchists argue that they bring in money through tourism. Republicans argue that that's not really measurable and that there are lots of funds that would find their way into the public purse if we didn't have a monarchy. The new king now has three main sources of wealth. The sovereign grant, money the UK Treasury gives the Crown to fulfil its royal duties. Last year, the Queen received $57 million. The family's private wealth, the full extent, a closely guarded secret. Then, the Duchy of Lancaster, a private estate of land, property and assets. The monarch receives its annual profits. The Queen received $27 million from it last year. The royals have never revealed the sums of their personal fortunes. The Sunday Times Rich List estimating the Queen's at $426 million. I cannot help but feel the weight of history. However big his inheritance, King Charles isn't legally obliged to pay tax on it, unlike everyone else in Britain who are liable to pay 40% tax. As King, Charles is exempt from inheritance tax on money he receives from the Queen, even when it comes to personal wealth. And I think at a time like this when a lot of people are struggling, when you're talking about someone with such wealth, I think that is likely to spark some criticism and some debate. But today, even the younger royals are getting richer. Prince William, who's now the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Cornwall, will receive money from the Duchy of Cornwall. It's one of the UK's largest real estate portfolios worth more than a billion dollars. Last year, it turned a profit of roughly 25 million. All of that money going to the then Prince Charles at the time, who managed the state for decades. For years, the Duchy has also bankrolled the lifestyle of the next in line Windsors, including Prince William and Kate and Harry and Meghan for a time. But this change of the Royal Guard coming when times are tough for millions in the UK. Thank you. Thank you. The energy crisis and soaring inflation hitting the pockets of British taxpayers. Some taking issue with taxpayer dollars supporting the monarchy and their lifestyle. It's hard to justify that, especially when so many people are struggling. They are quite wealthy already. 
and I don't see why they need my taxes. Yeah, in the midst of economic pain, and keep in mind part of the context also is that Queen Elizabeth was crowned in 1952 when more than a quarter of the world's population were under British rule. That was more than 700 million people. And that old saying, the sun never set on the British Empire. And it ranged from Africa, Asia, Middle East, the Pacific, and the Caribbean. So enormous wealth was accumulated. And apparently, even the crown jewels of the late queen were stolen from India and South Africa. And then I've heard also that some other countries are also putting in a claim for jewels that were stolen there. So Laura Carlson, let's let's start with you because we do know that Central Latin America, they participated in the Accra Summit on Reparations. And I don't know how much or if any at all discussion has been going on south of the border on the issue of reparations. And of course, Spain and Portugal would bear heavy in all of this. Laura Carlson, your thoughts on on the whole thing right now? It's a spectacle, as the monarchy always is, and the wealth that's been accumulated through the cost of human lives you know, over the century is obscene amounts. And it continues to have this perpetuating impact because of the structure of laws and because we live in a world where the wealthy get wealthier. So you can understand why people would be upset and it makes it more difficult to understand why so many working class people in England in particular, in a time, a post-pandemic time of austerity and the hardships that were mentioned in the clip, are almost unconditionally in mourning about this monarchy. I think one of the most important things is already happening, and that's a change in the narrative that was happening even before the Queen's death, and now this opens up an opportunity to really deepen it, which is beginning to question the the vestiges and actually, the again, the reproduction of colonialism in today's world, where we have the global south questioning it in many ways, where we have countries that are going back to history and understanding that there's no way really of moving forward without looking at that historical memory and without looking at historical justice. South of the border, there are a number of demands. They come up periodically. Uh, We're seeing now an increase in those kinds of demands coming from countries, especially in the Caribbean. Haiti has talked about it repeatedly. We were talking before about the big study of how much really should be owed these nations for what was stolen from them, not even counting the cost in human lives. But another fact that's interesting in this same general line of thought is that there's also this real push of indigenous people and others to go back and say, this is not just something terrible that happened to us in history. And we should all just kind of say, well, isn't that a shame? People are really tired of those kinds of comments, like Prince Charles when he was in the Caribbean. You know, they said, this is really, this is something that has a deep impact on this today. And if we do not fix it, in some ways, we cannot move forward as a society, as a democracy to begin to work on equality issues. So we have the genocide trials in Guatemala. We've worked with a number of groups, especially women-led groups, that have gone back to the courts and said, we demand justice 
for the genocide campaigns, for the sexual torture that took place during these campaigns, and they've begun to win some cases. And they include some kinds of economic reparations. And it's interesting to note that the biggest backlash against these focus on the economic reparations. And we're seeing that in this case, too. So I think that some of the decolonization measures are probably going to happen before the economic reparations issue is able to kind of coalesce, which I certainly hope it does, and become more of a, a viable reality for these nations. And that would be becoming republics and saying it's just ridiculous that we have a British head of state in our nation, and we're seeing a very notable increase in those demands, again, especially in the Caribbean countries after the Queen's death. And it has to do with the fact that this brings up, like, what kind of a structure did she represent? Is this really at all fitting for modern democratic aspirations? Uh, so I think that this is all very positive, and it does link to what's happening in the United States. As more research is done, it's really encouraging to see the new historical research that's coming up, or even Harvard beginning to trace back the ancestry of the slaves that built the universities and the institutions that we all live under. Hopefully this will proceed and there will be possibilities to begin to link up these movements so they're not just they're not just seen as one nation by one nation, but rather as a global effort to, to come to terms with colonialism and the way that it's reproduced in neocolonialism and begin to get some degree of justice. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, Laura mentioned, uh, you know, the, the lines, you know, the image that we're getting of uh, people in, across the UK, across the British Isles, mourning for the Queen. And indeed, many people are, are mourning. She was around for 70 years. There was a kind of a mental and emotional hold. I grew up in in Barbados every day in school, as well as in church, having to sing God Save Our Gracious Queen, which included a line, long may she reign over us. So you have a business, basically the firm, (laughs) right? Yeah, it was, it's horrible, you know, and the firm that uses, you know, God and, and bringing stability and culture or whatever, you know, that means. But um, Jackie Goldberg, I'm also looking at a letter now written by the Disability Poverty Campaign Group, over 100 major disability charities in the UK that are writing to the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, about what they're saying, intensifying levels of poverty and a humanitarian crisis. So this discussion is also going on at the same time that the enormous wealth of the royal family um, is being exposed. But Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, reparations were paid over 20 million pounds were paid in 1834. The problem was, is it was paid to the plantation owners in compensation for their loss of free labor after the slaves were emancipated. They understand reparations. They just don't understand who should get them. Um, (laughs) Oh, really? I mean, you know, Prince William actually said this when he came to Jamaica. And I'm reading from a Guardian article. And he said that while reparations are not part of the government's approach, we feel deep sorrow for the transatlantic slave trade and fully recognize the strong sense of injustice and the legacy of slavery 
in the most effective parts of the world. But he urged people to move on. Move on? What do you mean move on? You didn't pay us anything back for stealing all our wealth, for crying out loud. So I think that that there is going to be a more, much more talk about reparations. I think it will be more first in the Caribbean islands rather than in Africa. I'm not sure exactly why, but I do think that will be the case. I think, though, however, when we look at what's going on in England and this great love for this queen and so forth, I think that in some part it reflects a look at what's happening in the United States where there's such great division. And I think that some people are rushing to the queen's funeral and so forth, or, or at least to go visit her in state, because they recognize that somehow or another, a lot of people felt the country was united because there was a queen. I think that's nonsense, because if you take a look at the British prime minister elections, they're pretty well divided there, too. But I think that's what kind of is the emotional part of this is, is that, first of all, the only queen they ever knew, most people are not more than 70 years old. But also, I think it was the fact that people are looking at the United States and the divisions here and the deep divisions here and are thinking, what can save us from them? And I think there is a underlying belief in those people standing in those nine miles of, of waiting lines to visit the coffin that that queen did at least one thing that was very important to them. It made them all feel they were a part of one country. I think that's hogwash if you ask the people who live there, really. But you understand where that might be coming from. I also want to say that I think that it is long past time for the United Kingdom or America or anyone else to say, well, we don't believe in reparations. Well, I'm sure you don't believe in reparations. You stole all the money, all the goods you really took everything that wasn't, you know, tied down, and then you lifted the things that were tied down to take out of the countries. So I think that this is going to be an ongoing issue, and I don't think it's going to go away. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg and Dr. Gerald Horn. I mean, David Kamisiong, who is the Barbados ambassador to CARICOM, he was on this Sojourner Truth last week, in which he said uh, CARICOM is making a strong call for the Caribbean nations and Africa to move together on this issue of reparations and, and likely taking that broader to the entire diaspora. And of course, we know about the movements, you know, happening in, in the United States. So your thoughts on, on what is being exposed now in terms of the enormous wealth, uh, also the enormous theft and this growing global movement, Dr. Horn. Well, you probably should have a parasitologist on this panel, someone who studies parasites, because <laughs> there is no worse example of parasites than the so-called royal family who looted and plundered the world. And we should not overstate this idea of the royals being figureheads. I think that it's better to look at them as devious operators. I mean, for example, in countries like Canada and Australia, where the royals still serve as the head of state, you have a representative called the governor general, whose role is supposedly ceremonial. But recall that in 1975 in Australia, when the Labour Party was moving to the left, the governor general, the queen's representative, helped to engineer a coup. Recall that in 1983, when the United States invaded Grenada, a tiny island in the Caribbean, once again, the governor general collaborated with Washington in this escapade 
and reportedly that infuriated the then British Prime Minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher. We should also remember that these parasites have not only looted Africa, there is an ongoing controversy with regard to the Greek government trying to recover the so-called Elgin marbles, which London refuses to return. And then there are all of the massacres and depredations. Uh, I'm thinking of what happened in what was called British India and in Amritsar approximately a century ago. Recall what happened in Kenya, East Africa, during Queen Elizabeth's tawdry reign, when you had uh, mass detentions, castrations, murders, all in the name of Her Majesty's government. Recall what happened also during Her Majesty's reign in 1953 in Guyana on the northern coast of South America, where the left-wing leader, Chetty Jagan, was dislodged by the British military. And then London proceeded to stir up antagonisms between the population of South Asian descent and the population of African descent, which has been roiling the waters ever since. And I think we also should not forget how this minor monarchy on the fringes of Europe, speaking of England in the 1500s, was able to, in the next century, uh, challenge for world supremacy. Uh, according to Andrew Young, the former mayor of Atlanta, former chief aide to Martin Luther King, uh, he charged during his career there was actually racism that Britain was able to escape the religious conflicts then roiling the world. That is to say, the Ottoman Muslims versus the Iberian, Spanish, Portuguese Catholics. Britain opted for Protestantism. There weren't that many Protestants around. And so they virtually invented the question of race and then were able to co-op Irish and Scots and then ultimately Europeans from across the continent into this new identity politics of whiteness. And you turn that coin over and those of us not inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness were then subject to exploitation and in fact enslavement. So we should be shedding no tears for the passing of the queen. Instead, we should be redoubling our efforts to reclaim the wealth that they stole. Yeah, and uh, and there was that at least a professor, I think a woman from uh, Carnegie Mellon that was roundly criticized for precisely that that sentiment and, and really calling out the brutality of the of the British and, and all of this. So all of this is, is to be continued. Uh, thank each and every one of you for your comments here. Um, we are going to take our station break now. And when we return, we're going to take up the issue of the Ukraine, what is happening with that war as quagmire set in, and also this important summit that happened between uh, President Xi of China and Putin of Russia, and how we're looking now at the realignments that are happening in the world. Our panelists will stay with us. We'll be right back. Merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation 
triumphantly Won't you help to sing All righty, and the late, great Bob Marley's redemption song. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We would also like to welcome the listeners, Pacifica audience, and other Pacifica flagship stations and affiliate stations around the nation. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the United States, in the state of Mississippi. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across the UK, of which they are several. This is Margaret Prescott host of Sojourner Truth, and it is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Now, Ukrainian troops have pressed deeper into Russian-occupied territory in a continuing counter-offensive. Reports are that Ukraine has taken more than 6,000 kilometers, but that's 2,317 square miles from Russian control in September. But the expectations are that the war will continue for some time and that you'll see ups and downs on both sides. You'll see gains and losses, you know, on both sides. But meanwhile, the United States has pledged another $2.7 billion in military aid to the Ukraine. The U.S. has committed approximately $5.3 billion in uh, security assistance to the Ukraine since the, uh, the beginning of the Biden administration including approximately $4.6 billion since the beginning of Russia's going into Ukraine in February of 2022. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in the Ukraine on September 9th on an unannounced visit, ensuring Ukraine President Zelensky of additional billions, a couple of billion in military aid, and saying that U.S. support will be there for as long as it takes. So they're digging in for the for the long haul there. Now, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping met on Thursday, September 15th in Uzbekistan. And what I'd like to do now is to go to a clip from CNN on the Ukraine and about some on this summit. Two leaders united by their dislike of the U.S. Xi Jinping making his first trip outside of COVID lockdown China in more than two years. Face to face with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, who quickly addresses the elephant in the room. We highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. We understand your questions and concerns in this regard. Questions and concerns about Russia's deadly war in Ukraine, a shift in tone from the last time these two men met. At the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics in February, Xi and Putin announced a friendship with no limits and called for a new world order not dominated by Washington. But only weeks later, Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, and it has not gone according to plan. Russia's military battered, its economy increasingly isolated. Putin now needs China more than ever. But in his public comments, the Chinese leader made no mention of Ukraine. The White House argues when it comes to this war, 
Chinese friendship does have limits. We haven't seen the Chinese do anything overtly to support the effort by Mr. Putin inside Ukraine. Clearly, they haven't publicly uh, condemned it. I think the Chinese, as they watch what's going on here, they recognize um, how isolated Moscow is from the rest of the international community. They recognize the economic costs and consequences that this war is having on the, the Russian economy. Thanks in large part to the ongoing COVID lockdowns of entire Chinese cities, the Chinese economy is also taking a beating. Something she can't afford to ignore as he prepares to grant himself a third term in office. The Chinese and Russian navies are conducting joint patrols in the Pacific Ocean. But these types of shows of force have been challenged by the fierce resistance displayed by a much smaller military fighting on the battlefields of Ukraine. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, well, quite quite a lot there to unpack. And Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you. You know, we had talked about the Ukraine on the roundtable, certainly at the start of the war, and as it continued. And I think a lot of people now know that Russia had been complaining about NATO cozying up to its borders, didn't like it and had threatened to take action. NATO continued this kind of aggressive action despite an agreement that they wouldn't do that. Uh, Nevertheless, um, a lot of of people recognize that the invasion, which basically it it was of Russia uh, by the Ukraine, has come at a great cost, uh, particularly beginning with the lives of civilians, of the people, in Ukraine, and it seems now it's it's ongoing. Uh, the term quagmire is being used. Your thoughts on on where things are right now, and uh, in particular, this what's happening with Russia and China and all of this, Laura Carlson. With the recent the recent victory, well, not victory in the larger sense, but the advances of the Ukrainian army with retaking Isium and with the, the advance in the northern part of the country, it's changed some of the balance of powers on the battlefield, but we're still seeing pretty much the same situation in terms of the political stalemate. And I think that quagmire is the right word to use except that it probably goes deeper than that. A number of people, Biden celebrated the fact that there were advances, and it's been very clear that the Ukrainian people are willing to fight as long as it takes to defend their country, which is always a hard force to overcome, no matter the advantages that you may have militarily. And uh, But Biden said very clearly, he, ex- he used the words, the precise words that you mentioned, that this is, this is going to be a long haul. And they're still talking about millions more in aid being, being needed for that. So people are beginning to talk, and I think that there's a, at least some truth in this, that we're looking at a, pro- a proxy war that was designed to be on out, and that there is a strategy there to permanently weaken Russia in what is this, this other big global battle between the superpowers at that level, which is, which is utterly tragic, because it means that chances for peace are being overlooked. 
in terms of this long strategy. Now, China's role, and it was interesting because in the, in the declarations at the end of that meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which also included uh, Russia, India, Pakistan, and four Central Asian nations, and China emphasized that it was really there to talk to them. But at the end of this Russia-China meeting, it was, it was not China that came out with the admonishment to Russia you know, a kind of a veiled admonishment, but it was Russian government. It was the Russian government that said, and we have heard the concerns of the Chinese government regarding the war in Ukraine. Um, it's well known that China has, has, has decided to send no weapons. It's well known that they're not openly supporting this war effort, although they are buying Russian products to give them an out from the impact of the sanctions, and they are supplying Russians with other non-war type products as well. So the fact that it was that it was uh, Russia rather than China, it almost might make you think that they're they're beginning to look for a way out. They have a lot of strain on them, and it's not just the sanctions. It's that there's growing criticism in Russia as well. You have both the pro-war factions who are saying that Putin is not handling the war well because especially this latest defeat, and then you have the anti-war factions as well. The pressure's, the pressure's getting pretty, pretty heavy on the Russian government. Some people are talking about, well, they themselves are talking about putting up a referendum on reunification of the Donbass region, and um, they have set up governments in some of the areas that they hold. The state, of course, the rest of the world has rejected that. And meanwhile, it's the civilians who are taking the hardest hit. There's at least 360 children who have been killed. And the world is beginning to see severe food shortages, which are not just caused by that. We know the inequity of the food system is a big factor behind that as well. The inflation and the serious risk of some kind of a nuclear disaster with the attacks on the nuclear plant, even though it's now been shut down. So yeah lot at stake there. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And Jackie Goldberg, this has been, a, a, in some ways, a difficult one for the anti-war, for the peace movement, because, um, you know, we all know about the atrocities of war. I mean, it depends on who's doing the fighting and what levels of, of propaganda that you get depending on the story that's uh, that's being told. So sometimes it's very difficult to trust what you're hearing on either side. I mean, the latest thing is, is um, the, the finding of mass graves in this city that has been recaptured. But it does seem as though, on the one hand, the anti-war movement, peace movement has had some difficulty um, opposing um, the, the, the war and criticizing Russia for what it has done and balancing the critique of NATO and the role of the United States and the West in really pushing the envelope for this confrontation to happen. Jackie Goldberg. Russia's borders on several sides has always been a concern of the Russians, but I don't think that's what prompted the invasion of the Ukraine. They, they may say that, but I don't think it was an issue. I think his issue is, is basically Putin's desire to see himself as the leader of what was once the Soviet Union's vast lands. And uh, you could tell that because he didn't appear at Gorbachev's uh, uh, funeral, for example. I mean, he's definitely interested 
in dealing with Ukraine becoming a part of its uh, country again and wiping out the notion that there are Ukrainians and making them all Russians again. I think uh, I do think, though, there are rumors uh, that Putin is, quote, saying uh, we will do our best to stop this. Uh, what it is not a war, it's a, uh, a, a military uh, something. He says he's going to stop this. Well, I think that's because they are getting much more difficulties when all these bodies have been coming home. They've denied how many have died, but you can't deny it when the body is returned to the family. And also, I think there's a big problem because the uh, folks that, uh, as, as, as was just said before I spoke, the peace movement believes in peace, but it does not, has never believed that people have no right to defend themselves against invasion. I mean, that's never been a part of the peace movement in America. The problem is, is that when there is a invasion and there doesn't seem to be a road to peace. And I think that's the, the move that the peace movement in America is trying not so well to say that it is time to begin negotiations. It is time to have uh, changes in the fighting. It is time to call for ceasefires. It is time to call for people staying where they are in place and finding a way to negotiate people to the Russians to leave the country. Uh, that is the peace movement's view is, is that it is time for negotiations long past. I think the fear is, is that the United States keeps sending weapons, Europe keeps sending weapons, that, that there is no incentive uh, really on either side for a discussion of ending this conflict um, because they, they think they can win in, in the Ukraine and Russia thinks it can win. And as long as both sides are convinced that they can win, it's very hard to get negotiations started. Right. Thank you, uh, Jackie Goldberg. And, and Dr. Horn, a lot of eyes now on what's going on between China and Russia. And you have made the case before that all of this is about not only weakening Russia, but with eyes to weakening China. And one has to wonder if that Western, the US-led effort, Western effort to weaken China, as well as Russia, um, if it's working. I mean, the impact um, that that is is having. And, and Dr. Horn, just your thoughts on uh, where things are now in this whole uh, geopolitical uh, dance then. Uh, happening, Dr. Horn. Well, a moment or two ago, we talked about the transition 500 years ago with the rise of London. I think we're living through another transition, which is the rise of China. And it appears to me, at least, that this war in Central Europe, in Ukraine, is meant to not only weaken Russia, but perhaps to bring back a Yeltsin-type regime, which will then allow the North Atlantic countries to plunder the vast resources of Russia and then stand up to China more effectively. Uh, this article in the New York Times this morning, which tries to fabricate some sort of rift between Beijing and Moscow, I think is fanciful. They must assume that China cannot see what I'm seeing here in Texas, which is that Russia is a kind of firewall. And to the extent that Russia is destabilized, then next on the menu, will be China. Uh, you see evidence of this transition through an article in the Financial Times of London just a few days ago, which suggested that Beijing is supplying more capital to various nations than the International Monetary Fund, 
and also more capital for building projects than the World Bank. The two institutions are located in Washington, D.C. There is a possibility that with the devising of this digital Chinese currency, that China will be able to circumvent this dollar-based economy, which has ruled the world since World War II. And already, uh, whatever the New York Times says, you see that what's keeping the Russian economy afloat is not only sale of energy uh, to China and thereby garnering of revenue, but also the supply of Chinese products, uh, such as the Xiaomi uh, mobile phone. I think also with, with regard to this recent counteroffensive that was successful by the Ukrainians, um, we have to look at that more carefully, particularly the visit to Kiev of Secretary of State Blinken, where he announced another uh, huge package. And by the way, these huge packages are being announced as homelessness continues to escalate in cities like Los Angeles. But part of that package was not only going to Ukraine, it was going to the Baltics, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, going to Moldova, going to Bulgaria. Uh, there is an inference being drawn that there might be some sort of multi-prong offensive uh, from those nations. A Georgian parliamentarian, which of course fought a conflict with Russia a few years ago, suggested that Georgia declare war on Russia. And in any case, uh, this escapade in Ukraine is backfiring. You would think that the sanctions imposed were against Germany and its European Union allies with regard to their energy bills skyrocketing, factories closing, growing anger at Norway, which is an energy producer and apparently is profiting handsomely uh, from the dilemma and the problems of its European allies. And then by pulling away from Russia, all that means is that the Europeans are going to have to become more heavily dependent on Africa, nations like Algeria and natural gas, nations like uh, Nigeria and Angola in terms of petroleum. And in those countries, those African countries, you still have a sour view of colonialism and, his and, and the history, the inglorious history that was foisted upon them by these European colonizers. So in some senses, the Europeans the North Atlantic countries might be headed from the uh, frying pan to the fire. And also another point with regard to this transition, you see that uh, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, you have other countries uh, battering down their doors, seeking admission, including the key NATO member, uh, that is Turkey, which is now facing the prospect of being sanctioned by Washington because they're not gung-ho about this escapade against uh, Russia. So I think that it leaves two lingering questions that we all need to contemplate. Uh, one, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, why wasn't uh, Moscow invited to the top table of imperialism? Instead, you had an expansion of NATO to its borders, which was bound to generate a negative reaction. And two, why isn't there more discussion in the United States as to how this 1972 anti-Soviet pact by Henry Kissinger and Richard M. Nixon uh, led to the rise of China and the dilemma faced by U.S. imperialism. Wow, quite, quite a lot there to digest. Thank you, Dr. Horn. And Dr. Horn um, and all of our panelists, looking at the clock, we've got about four minutes left. 
Um, and Dr. Horn, I wonder if you just want to um, take perhaps each person two minutes or something like that uh, to talk about the, the Trump troubles right now. Trump is warning of big problems. He's warning of violence on the street if he's indicted. We know there's a special master now. There are all these intelligence of files that uh, Trump is claiming as his personal property. Uh, Dr. Horn and each of you, if you just take a, a short bit to comment on what is happening now and, and anything about the midterms in terms of what this might mean. Dr. Horn, why don't we start with you? Well, I'll be brief. Uh, I think we should take with a grain of salt these polls that suggest that the Democrats will retain control of the Senate and they may lose the House because we have to be students of history. And we know that routinely the polls and the posters underestimate the strength of the Trump vote for whatever reason. There have been many explanations. And I think we should also take seriously these threats of violence, not only by Mr. Trump, by, by his wingman, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who basically promised riots in the streets if Mr. Trump is indicted. And Mr. Trump has made clear that uh, even if he's indicted and convicted, uh, he can run the country from a jail cell. Right. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, we'll go to you next because um, a big elephant in the room, of course, is Dobbs and women. And things have shifted a bit more um, towards the Democrats uh, since Dobbs. Um, and then you had uh, Joe Biden making this, uh, sum this summit um, on calling out white supremacy, although that summit is being roundly criticized by a number of um, human rights campaigners for uh, some reasons, which hopefully we'll get more into next week. But Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, I think that that the, the Roe versus Wade is the really big unknown. After Kansas and a couple of other places where we've seen some real changes in how people have voted, particularly what we're looking at is, of course, the independents. The independents and particularly the suburban independents are really um, not happy about the end of Roe versus Wade. And also, I think that Lindsey Graham saying that he wants to uh, have abortion banned in the whole country by when they come back into Congress, I think was the bad mistake on their part. All that does is motivate more women to keep getting uh, ready to vote uh, these folks out. However, having said all of that, I think we lose the House. Uh, I don't think we lose it by as much as we were going to because of this. I also think there are people who are going to who are actually the silent Republicans who are going in some number, maybe one, two, three percent of his former base who are now tired of his being in trouble all the time. And everything is about his legal problems. And maybe he's a downside to us who may either stay home or vote for a Democrat here and there. So it's very uh, difficult to say, but I cannot see how the Democrats hold on to the House. Uh, I do think it's very possible that they hold on to the Senate. Yeah, people better get out, our listeners out there, folks better get out and vote. The Poor People's Campaign has started a, a, an initiative, uh, you know, saying get out and vote for justice, you know. So we'll see how it goes. But Laura Carlson, a, a, a quick comment from you. Well, I think the legal battles are dividing the Republican Party somewhat, but then it's always been astounding that the way they they follow Donald Trump into all kinds of 
what normally would be considered political morasses. He the, now the January sixth investigation is broadening out to both the elections, to the riot, and to the the fundraising parts of it. There's more than 870 arrests. The New York City attorney has now. Um, the New York attorney has announced that there'll be a, probably a lawsuit against him, rejected a settlement, and there may be a lawsuit against his kids. And yet still the Republican Party follows it. I think we're seeing a broader picture. I think we're seeing that by the fact that the Republican Party and the big donors are, are continuing to support this and him as a front-runner candidate, what we're seeing is that democracy or even the pretext of democracy is no longer functional to billionaire capitalism. And ironically, yep. there's a big part of the rest of the country that's going along with that. Right. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. A lot more to unpack here. But just to say, you know, when people think things can't get any worse, keep in mind that they can. Get out and vote, okay? Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank our panelists. Another fascinating roundtable. I'd like to thank our board operator today, Ari Bada, and our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air on Tuesday. Stay tuned. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend and you'll stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening. A man like that is hard to find, but I can get him off my mind. Ain't it sad? And if he happens to be free, I bet he wouldn't fancy me.